Hey, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the Week in Film Tech, May 23rd, 2019. We've got a couple big stories with us this week. We've got EditShare bringing on outside investment. We have Apple rolling out a new laptop aimed at pros. We've got Goodson shipping their SlyPod, which is a very fascinating bit of new technology. We've got all that and a Hey Professor this week on the Week in Film Tech. Our top story this week, Apple has an 8-core laptop. I have complicated feelings about Apple. First off, I've bought more than a dozen of them over the years. When I had a post facility, we had like 14 iMacs and 6 Mac Pros. And, you know, my uh, Apple Care list of assignments has been very complicated over the years. So I've made a lot of money on Apple machines, and I've made a lot of very cool things on Apple machines. And mostly, I have a pretty good relationship with Apple machines. I know that a lot of people in the tech community consider them overpriced, but I've always felt like when you consider everything that comes with them, it's pretty exciting. And I feel like the price always works itself out. Also, they hold their value really well. For like a decade of my life, not a decade, like eight years, I'd buy a new MacBook Pro every year, selling my old one. And, you know, it would have only lost three or $400 in price or maybe $500 in price. So I was paying $500 a year to rent the newest MacBook Pro. It worked out really well with AppleCare. It was a really good system. I liked it a lot. And so I think there's like real uses for Apple technology and film professionals. You will also still go to sets and see like seven MacBook Pros lined up on a folding table. The DIT might have a big fancy PC system, but everybody else is going to have some sort of Mac. They're still very dominant in the filmmaking and creative space. However, they've made decisions that have really frustrated filmmakers. Uh, the transition to Final Cut 7 to Final Cut 10 was not handled as well as it could have been, although I think Final Cut 10 is making a huge comeback, and I'm starting to see some really interesting tech there. And switching from NVIDIA to AMD is sort of a bold choice. Uh, I still regularly use my 2013 MacBook Pro because it has an NVIDIA card in it. And I think that there have been a lot of interesting decisions they've made. One of the biggest frustrations that a lot of film pros have had with them is an irregular release cycle. So like I said, I used to do this thing where every year they came out with a new MacBook Pro and I would buy the new one and I would sell my old one and it would have two years of Apple Care left. So the person buying the new one would get something great and I would get the latest and greatest and it worked out really well and they had a very predictable release cycle. And we see this with them in the consumer space. They are rolling out iPhones on a very regular, predictable cycle. I haven't upgraded my iPhone since the iPhone success because I like a headphone jack. <laughs> but they have a very coherent system there. So what's really interesting to me about them rolling out an 8-core laptop today, first off, hooray for an 8-core laptop. Now, I mostly focus on GPU when I talk about what kind of specs you want as a filmmaker because we want GPU for graphic. It's a graphics processing chip. You want a strong GPU because you want to be able to process a lot of graphics. And video applications often use a strong GPU to your advantage. It's why Blackmagic makes the eGPU. And the 15-inch MacBook Pro Retina has always been the laptop I've recommended people buy because you get two GPUs. You get the integrated Intel, and then you get a discrete with the 2013 NVIDIA with anything newer and AMD. And um, when plugged into wall power, you get all that graphics power available to you. However, there's still a lot of applications that are very CPU heavy. There's still a lot of film tools that are still CPU heavy. Actually, if you looked at any of the reviews that happened for the uh, Blackmagic eGPU, a lot of people were really frustrated because they were like, oh, it speeds up noise correction and speeds up nodes and resolve, but it doesn't speed up my transcodes. That's because transcodes are still very CPU heavy. So an 8-core MacBook Pro is super exciting. Hooray. I will almost definitely be selling my old laptop and getting one because that is part of my professional habit has always been to have the newest MacBook Pro. Although I did wait, I didn't get the 2016, or I got the 2016, I returned it because I hated the keyboard so much. I got the 2018. The keyboard feel 
is much better than the 2016 and it is much more powerful than the 2013. However, as any of you who read the Wall Street Journal have paid attention to, there's a huge keyboard problem even with the 2018. It feels better than the 16, but as a sticky key repeat thing where you'll type a key like the space bar and it'll put in like two spaces or you'll type a key but like E and it'll double E. And uh, this is a huge problem. There's an article, I think it was the Wall Street Journal that could show you the article like as originally typed on that keyboard and then copy edited. It was super annoying. Uh, there's a program called Unshaky. If you're having a 2018 MacBook Pro and you have this problem, check out Unshaky. It has fixed it for me. Uh, it has made it a very usable uh, computer for me using Unshaky. However, they have also, in addition to the 8-core, included a improvement to the laptop. They say they've switched materials and we shouldn't have this problem with the 2019 that we were having with the 2018. So two good things, eight core and a fixed keyboard. These are very exciting. So why are you mixed about this, Charles? I hypothetically ask myself. So here are the things that frustrate me about this decision. The first thing is it's a weird release cycle and they've been weird on this release cycle throughout. So the original came out with the laptop in August and then in October they came out with the 2018, the one I'm using now. The one most, a lot of people, a lot of people skipped the 2016, 2017. I know a lot of people who waited for the 2018 um, for the keyboard fix and for more improvements. Came out with it in August. And then in October, they came out with a GPU upgrade. And I was like, I just bought a laptop. I always get the biggest GPU you can get because we're very GPU hungry as filmmakers. And then they came out with a better GPU like two months later, which was like annoying. And now in May... And, like, I was literally just about to dig out the box and sell my laptop because I was assuming the new one was coming in August and I didn't have any big jobs this summer. Now in May, the next one has come out. So those of us who always sell the old one and buy a new one, like, the price drop that always comes when the new one comes out just happened. And it's like, I, I love that Apple is clearly paying attention to pros again. I feel a lot more engagement from them. I feel like an 8-core laptop is going to be really huge for professionals and it's going to... Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of them on film sets very soon. But I just wish it had come out in August. And I wish it came out in August with the highest GPU bump. But there are presumably some people with summer projects who are going to be very excited about this. And this is like a very small grumble. If the new material out of the keyboard really does fix the unshaky key problem, I think it is overall a win. And I'm excited. Uh, I can't wait to sell my old one and get a new one and, and take a look at how uh, eight core speeds really ramp up transcoding. Because I think that is one thing that we're really seeing a lot of hunger for. The other thing you get out of the new ones, uh, and I think this started with the 2018, is they have a dedicated H.265 processor. Same with the iMac Pro, same with the Mac Mini, in fact. So if you've been having any situations where you have to record H.265, which is what the industry is moving towards, it's the new version of H.264, a lot of people used to notice H.265 renders would take four times as long as an equivalent H.264 render. And with the new Mac Mini and the new MacBook Pro, we're starting to see much more time parity because they have dedicated hardware to speeding that up. And I think you're going to start to see a lot of H.265 native work and a lot of speed in H.265 native processing with these 2019s. Now, I will also say part of the reason I'm a little disappointed is that there was a rumor going around on the internet, which, you know, not a trustworthy place, where there would be a new 16-inch MacBook Pro this year that would be called a 16-inch, same physical size, but like smaller bezels, big, bigger screen, the thing they're always doing with the phones, and that they were going to get rid of the touch bar because the touch bar does nothing. The touch bar is useless. And I would really like like real function keys back. So that rumor had me really excited where I was like, ooh, more screen real estate and no touch bar. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get that. But we did get eight cores and a new keyboard. And I think that those are actually going to be very interesting and worth upgrading for, especially if you're doing a lot of transcoding, a lot of long exports. The GPUs are going to be great for plug-ins and noise correction and 
image processing, but transcoding is still heavily CPU-based, and you're going to want to think about Apple for that. Our next bit of news is EditShare. So if you don't know EditShare, EditShare are one of the big companies, along with like Facilis and Avid, who make tools for shared media storage. Oh, and LumaForge. Can't forget LumaForge. Uh, EditShare has been around about 15 years, started by filmmakers out of Boston, and they make one of the real agnostic servers. So like one of the people I mentioned that list is obviously Avid. And if you have an Avid ISIS, like we have an Avid ISIS where I teach, Pearson Graduate School of Cinema, you can edit off it for Premiere. You can edit off of it for Resolve. We use it all the time. We have a Resolve shared workflow here going, which is all great, which is built on Nexus infrastructure, which is what they was originally Avid ISIS, but they changed the name to Avid Nexus for obvious terrorism related reasons. Not that Avid was terrorists. There's a terrorist organization called ISIS. Avid will play with others, but Avid obviously is really designed for like media composer working with Nexus together as a team like it's very much designed for that integrated workflow and edit share has always been the like we're agnostic lightworks premiere final cut 7 whoever we're going to play with everybody and what's really interesting about this particular news out of edit shares edit share has a new ceo you know the founder has originally been the ceo the founder is now just going to be in charge of tech development and the new ceo is going to do all the ceo stuff including sales teams and stuff like that on top of that they brought in some investment capital out of chicago and I don't usually cover the business side of news, but I actually had a call with the EditShare folks next week, and I'm going to be writing an article about this. And the reason why I'm covering this news is because EditShare really wants to be the agnostic cloud platform. And I think that's really exciting for filmmakers. So right now, we have a couple of cloud solutions. We have like Adobe Creative Cloud. We have Media Composer's cloud solution. I really like what Resolve is doing by teaming up with Frame.io. I think that's really smart. But what EditShare wants to do is they want to have a system that is not tied to a server. Like if you go Frame.io, Frame.io runs on Avid, uh, on Amazon Web Services, AWS. Totally fine with me. There are people who object to things Amazon does, though. And every once in a while, I'm annoyed by Amazon and want to be free of that service. Also, let us not forget, Amazon is also in the content business. So let's say you're a big content provider and you want to be able to not give your competitor money. That means you don't want to pay Frame.io money because Frame.io is paying Amazon Web Services for their web hosting. A lot of companies don't care and, you know, people give money to their competitors all the time. The famous example is Panavision is Aries' number one client and number one competitor. EditShare's whole approach and the reason they brought on this investment capital and their big tech push is they want to build tools to really create an integrated seamless web workflow, cloud workflow, that you can install on any server you want. You can have the server in your facility. And you can be using that to stream to multiple people if you want to keep it in-house for security reasons, which I think is going to be very attractive to some big companies. You can host it on Google's cloud or Amazon's cloud or GoDaddy. Is GoDaddy still a cloud hosting solution? You can park it wherever you want your data. And I think that at the indie end, we're not going to be as interested in this. At the true indie end, I'm not usually going to want to have to develop and roll out this kind of technology. EditShare's always actually been very friendly for indies. And I think that this is going to be for like the bigger indies and then obviously the big media players. I think it's going to be an effective and interesting solution to be able to have something that's agnostic. It's not tied to a specific editor. It's not tied to a specific cloud server. You can buy their hardware, put it in house. You can get their software, develop it in the cloud, deploy it in the cloud. So I think EditShare taking on this money bringing in a new CEO so that the original founder who is a filmmaker who has that filmmaking experience can really focus in a targeted way on developing like actually useful cloud workflow tools. 
I think is a really interesting combination, and I'm excited to see what EditShare is able to do by bringing all those things together. Next up, if you guys don't know Goodson, Goodson's a Chinese company. They make some stabilizers. The stabilizer that they're sort of best known for in North America is the Moza. The Moza Air 2 came out this spring. Moza Air 2 looks very much like a Ronin S. I wouldn't call it a direct ripoff. There's some things they did that are interestingly slightly different. Um, but, you know, you've got the DJI Ronin S and you have the Moza Air 2, and they're, they're very similar approaches to stabilization. But it's a slightly more affordable. I mean, the DJI is already really affordable. And you start to see it like... Atomos and Nikon teamed up and did like a filmmaker package and it came with the Moza RS and you're starting to see it around and they have a follow focus accessory and there's some interesting stuff going on. And they showed something at NAB, which was just so pleasantly weird that I wanted to share about it. It was called the Slypod and it just started shipping this week. And the what it is, so it's a basically like a boom pole, but it's a boom pole that, you know, telescoping boom pole that you can mount your stabilizer to and it telescopes. So you can just stick it on a tripod and use it as a slider, right? Controlling with your app, or I'm sure there's hardware controls. So you've got a little like three foot or whatever slider. And sometimes that's all the slide move you need. But what's also interesting about it is that you can use it sort of as a boom pole. And because the camera's stabilized there at the end, it's out there, it's getting stabilized, it's smooth. So as opposed to something like the charger's pole, the charger pole is super fun and way longer. And like with a little camera and a stabilizer, you can put the camera crazy places with charger's pole, charger's pole, two thumbs up. But uh, with the Slypod, it's shorter, but because it telescopes in and out, you're going to be able to do some like slightly more technocrany kind of moves. Because usually when you're on any kind of pivot like that, as you pan the camera or you like you pivot the camera up and down, it moves in an arc. But because this goes in and out and you've got the stabilization of the air two at the end, you're going to be able to do moves that are like more straight up and down. Where as you're pivoting it, you're also extending it. So the camera is going straight up and straight down. So if you want to track onto a sign on a wall or you want to like move the camera up the body of the villain going past their gun to their face, it's going to be much easier to do that in coordination. It's one of those things that's just like, once you see it, you're like, oh yeah, that's smart. Haven't had hands on with it yet. Not sure how it's going to work. Saw it in NAB. Seemed like it's a pretty fascinating thing. It is shipping this week. If you've used a Slypod in person, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think and how it is going because I'm very curious about it. It's one of those like pleasant little like integrations of things coming all together. All right. Up next this week, we had a question from Hey Professor, which you can always hit me up at Twitter at Charles Hayne with Hey Professor questions. And Famira Films, I've answered Famira Film questions again. And honestly, Famira, you can ask me something every week and I will keep on answering it. Famira asked me a really interesting question. And I'm going to go off in a total tangent and not answer your question from here. From here, I asked, hey, have you ever been able to get the run stop of a Tilta follow focus, which has run stop in it, to run stop an Atomos? I've never even tried. I like that you are trying to do that. I don't know that it's possible. But here's what I wanted to say about it, which is the reason why I liked that question and the reason why I wanted to answer it is we are still in an interesting arena where technology is evolving super fast. And what ends up happening is things like RunStop and things like that don't actually... It's about the proliferation of standards, right? So RunStop was traditionally something... I remember buying follow focuses like 10, 15 years ago, and it would always be like, all right, you need this cable to RunStop a red. You need this uh, cable to RunStop an Aerie. You need this cable to RunStop a Panavision. There were different protocols, different cable connectors, a variety of different things. And there has never been sort of the wide development of standards in the industry for precise how that is going to work. Anybody who has ever set up a system for like, if you are using um, like an intervalometer or something like that in order to do time-lapse footage and all of that kind of stuff, you've run into the fact that like 
you know, oh, you'll buy a new thing or you'll buy a new uh, slider that'll control time lapse or whatever. And it's like, oh, here are the cameras that are supported and here are the cameras that are not. And you're like, but those four cameras that are not are made by the same company, the cameras who are. And even those cameras have different protocols for run stop and external control. And I just wanted to use this question to, to really push for more formalization and standardization within the cinema tech industry. We do have standardization bodies, SMPTE and MPEG, and, but they work on these like big programs of creating this standardization. And uh, I think it's, it's very tough for small companies and Atomos and Tilt are both, you know, small to mid-size at this point, to support every single accessory application. So I would say that, like, if you're not able to make it work, I wouldn't hold it against Tilta or Atomos individually because, you know, someone at Atomos has to write the controller to accept run-stop from every single different vendor. And someone at Tilta has to write it to work with every single different um, receiver. And at these little companies, if you only have one client asking for it, it's very hard to devote programming time when you have 50 clients asking for the fixing of some other bug. So it always becomes sort of a process of arbitrage. So I've never been able to get that tilt of Atomos thing. I've never even tried it. It's not something that ever occurred to me to try. Um, I'm working with an Atomos Shogun in Fergo right now, but I just hit the button because it's right below screen. But I thought it was a really good question, and I wanted to talk a little bit about like why a lot of times in the film industry, a lot of that stuff is so hard to make work. And it's because there's so much fragmentation. There's so many different companies, and standardization between them hasn't really been something at that minute detail that has really come up. I mean, even look at lens mounts. How many mirrorless lens mounts are there? And every camera company is having their own proprietary mount, although I'm very excited about people adopting the L mounts between Sigma and a few other companies. I think I would like to continue to push for, please, can we have more universal standards that companies adopt? Can we have a little bit more, like, all of the filmmaking companies playing a little bit better with each other because I think it would be super useful. But again, with the little companies, a standard would make it easier because if Atomos met the standard and Tilta met the standard, then it would be fine and they would just automatically play together. Standards make it easier for small companies to have that kind of integration. All right, this has been another week of the Week in Film Tech. If you want links to all the articles for stuff I'm talking about, go to weekinfilmtech.com and sign up on the mailing list. And I send out a mailer every week reminding you there's a new episode and here's all the stuff I talked about in that episode. If you uh, want to ask me questions, at Charles Hain on Twitter, or uh, you can follow me at onrecky on Instagram, Recky is on Facebook. Uh, you can also see a lot of stuff I write on No Film School, and there's always the No Film School podcast where I co-host that as well. So there's a lot of ways to engage. There's a whole lot of stuff. Please, uh, we're trying to grow the audience on the show. If you have other filmmaking friends and you learned a cool thing here, and you have filmmaking friends that you think should be learning cool stuff, you should let them know about the Week in Film Tech here every Thursday with all the tech news you're too busy to keep up with. This has been Charles Ang. 